The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 17 and verse 24, the 24th, the last verse in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Now perhaps it would be well for me to read from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon an high mountain and eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Now, this is just one of those remarkable passages of prophecy which are to be found in such abundance in the writings of these Old Testament prophets. It's one of those prophecies of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and of the setting up of his kingdom. Here is a man living centuries before the event who, having been given the revelation and the understanding by God, thus delivers his message. And as is characteristic of the prophetic message, he not only puts it in a pictorial form, but he at the same time puts it in a way which causes it to deal with the immediate history. He was writing to his contemporaries. The prophets were always practical men, we mustn't think of them as visionaries, uh, away from life and remote and apart. They were men who were primarily concerned to deliver a practical message uh, to their fellow countrymen. And as they deal with immediate events, they then, under this guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit, are led on to see something further of God's great and gracious purpose, and so they prophesy the coming of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what is meant by this twig which is taken off from the branch of this goodly cedar and how it is planted on the top of the mountain in the height of Israel and how from a humble and almost insignificant beginning it becomes a great kingdom which eventually is going to capture and to conquer all the kingdoms of this world, and Jesus Christ shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moons shall wax and wane no more. It's a prophecy, then, I say, 
of the coming of the kingdom of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That I am calling attention to it this evening, not so much to emphasize that aspect of prophecy, but I am calling attention to it because in this interesting way, the prophet also reminds us of what are, after all, the essential characteristics of this kingdom, or if you prefer it, the essential characteristics of the Christian way of salvation. Now, I'm choosing this form in which to put it to you because you notice it's put in the form of a picture. The whole chapter is a great picture about a number of trees. And here this picture, this image is continued right until the very end. And it's put in this form that God is going to bring down the high tree and he's going to exalt the low tree. He's going to dry up the green tree and he is going to make the dry tree to flourish. Now, this, it seems to me, is a very vital matter for our consideration. More and more, I am convinced that the trouble which um, so many people seem to have with the Christian faith and the Christian message, the thing, in other words, that seems to them to be an obstacle to their becoming Christian, all it seems to me arises from the fact that it is their essential idea of the thing that is at fault. Now, you generally find that people put forward their difficulties. We all do the same, of course. They tend to put forward their difficulties in details. Why this, or I don't understand that. But surely before you ever come to the realm of details, it is always well to look at a thing like this as a whole. There are certain branches of learning in which uh, you have to learn the language, as it were, before you can possibly hope to do anything else. And if you're ignorant of the language, well, there's no point in proceeding any further. There are realms in which you must have the essential spirit before you can proceed. If a man has no kind of musical faculty or interest or taste, well, he can sit and listen to lectures on music, but he probably won't profit. There is a given datum, surely, with, every, with regard to every branch of knowledge. Now, that's very vital and very important in connection with this whole question of the Christian faith. And I am suggesting that so many people are in trouble because they've not realized at the very beginning the character of this message and the uniqueness of its character and the way in which it differs in a most essential manner from everything else that is confronting mankind this evening. If they're wrong thus at the beginning, they must of necessity be wrong in all their subsequent searching and endeavor. If you're wrong on your fundamental principle, you will of necessity be wrong in all your details. Now, the children of Israel were constantly falling into this self-same error. The Old Testament is a longish book, and yet you know there's a sense in which it's a very simple book, because it's really got only one message, and it goes on repeating it. It puts it in different ways. It puts it historically, it puts it didactically, it puts it in form of direct teaching, but it's always the same point. It's roughly this. 
God had made this one nation for himself, this nation of Israel. They were his own peculiar people, standing out apart and distinct from all the other nations. And God had a certain plan and a certain program for them. He had made certain promises to them, but he always laid down his conditions. Now the trouble with the children of Israel was that they never seemed to have grasped their uniqueness. You read the story. Doesn't matter at what age, they were always falling into this error. They could not see that the thing that mattered about them was their relationship to God. And that because they were God's people, that everything that applied to them must be different from all the other nations. Now they wouldn't see that. They said, we are a nation like every other nation. We ought to be doing what other nations are doing. You remember that they asked for a king. God never intended them to have a king. God was to rule them himself directly. Israel was meant to be a theocracy. But they wouldn't have that. They said the other nations have got kings. Why shouldn't we have a king? And they agitated for a king. Now, it was all, I say, due to the fact that they'd never seen that God's way of dealing with them must never be thought of in line of what was happening to other nations. That this was a unique work and a separate work. They couldn't see it. They always went the other way, and the result was that eventually they landed themselves in disaster. Now, there, I say, is a great and a grand object lesson for us. It is something that is being done still by large numbers of men and women. They start in the wrong way. They haven't seen the foundation. They've never understood this vital point of difference with respect to the gospel. Well, now then, let me show you how all that is worked out and illustrated here by this prophet Ezekiel in this picture of his about the trees. Here I say are underlined and emphasized the essential characteristics of this Christian message, this Christian way of salvation. Now, we're in a world full of trouble and full of problems, full of pain and of difficulties. We know our personal problems. We know something about the larger problems in groups of society and as between nations and the whole problem of the world. And we are being addressed by various vices, various ideas are being put before us. And amongst them, here is this message of the Christian faith. Now, I say nothing is so vital and all-important as that we should understand, before we come down to any details at all, what are the essential characteristics of this Christian message? Well, now then, here's the first. It is God's action, and God's action entirely. Thus saith the Lord God, I, the Lord, have spoken, and have done it. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree. It's always God, you see. Now this sounds so elementary, doesn't it? As almost to be unnecessary. And yet I suppose that it's here at the very beginning and at the very origin of the whole matter that most people will go astray. 
We all seem to have the idea by nature that the religion, Christianity, is something like this. That God is there somewhere distantly in the heavens, static as it were, immovable. And that the whole business of Christianity, the whole message of the Bible, is something which is an exhortation to us to do something and to arrive at God. It's assumed, you see, that man uh, is anxious to know God and to find God and to please God, and that all man needs, therefore, is a help and a stimulus and something that will act as a kind of fillip to him in this endeavor of his uh, to arrive at this knowledge of God. Now, I think you'll agree that that is the kind of basic assumption which we all tend to make. I'm never tired of putting it in this form. Ask people uh, in a discussion on religion. Listen to them having their discussions about it. Read the books about it. You'll see it constantly suggested in the papers. And it's always this idea that it's all something that uh, you and I have got to do primarily and essentially. And yet you know that is a complete denial of the message of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. The Old Testament, for instance, is not what it's so often said to be at the present time. It is not a history of the search of mankind for God. It's the exact opposite. It is the history and the story of God, the eternal Seeking lost men. The Bible is the record of the activity of God. Of course, he has taught men to do things. He has stimulated men. He has inspired men to do things. But the actor in the Bible is God and not man. That's why it's so different from every other type of history. This isn't secular history. This isn't merely human history. This is divine history. The whole purpose of this book is to tell us of what God has done in this world, how he has intervened, how he has entered into it, what he has done about it. All along, I say, it is this mighty activity of God. The whole story of the children of Israel surely proves that in and of itself. It was God who called Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. It was God who prepared him. The man was living amongst pagans in a state of paganism, and he would have continued to do so unless God had visited him. It's God all along, and so on right through the subsequent story. And yet the astounding thing is that people with an open Bible, and having read it, still think of it primarily as an activity of their own. And as long as, of course, as we think in that way, and in those terms, we must of necessity go astray. The unique thing about the Christian faith is this, that it comes primarily to us as a message, an announcement, a proclamation of what God has done. It's good news, hence the term gospel. That's what it means. We are asked to listen to something, some thrilling good news, some statement and explanation of what God the Lord as he tells us here, has done amongst us, men and for our salvation. It is God's way of redeeming men, not man's way of arriving at God. Now you notice that that becomes important for this reason. You notice how the Apostle Paul puts it. 
And I want to show you this evening the strange correspondence between this one verse and its essential message and the tremendous passage of Scripture that we read at the beginning out of that first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. There Paul puts in a much more modern way for us, no longer in a picture but in bold and varnished statements, the precise message that we've got here. You notice how he tends to wind up his message. He says, Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In other words, if, we, if I may put it in the form of a test, which we can apply to ourselves, there's a very simple way in which any one of us can prove for certain whether we are Christian or not. Wouldn't we like to know that for certain? Well, I know no more thoroughgoing test than this. I know of no better, a more subtle, delicate, acid test than this one. Do you realize at this moment that you owe everything to the grace of God? Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. It's put negatively in exactly the same way that there may be no glorying in men, that every mouth may be stopped, that all human boasting may be silenced. The test of a Christian is this. He, the Christian is a man who knows that he is what he is, as Paul puts it, by the grace of God. All the glory must go to God. And if he doesn't, well, we're not Christians. You can be religious without being a Christian. And, of course, if you're just religious, you must take all the glory to yourself. Saul of Tarsus did that, didn't he, before his conversion? He tells us how proud he was, how boastful he was. What did he boast about? Well, he boasted about the fact that he was so religious. He not only boasted about his birth and his upbringing, he said, as touching the law, blameless exceeding all others in zeal and in knowledge and in everything else. He was glorying in himself. He said, look at me. I'm fasting, I'm sweating, I'm praying, I'm studying the scriptures, I'm expounding them. This is what I'm doing. And I'm a good man, I'm better than others. I'm a godly man, look at me, boasting, calling attention to himself, glorying in himself. But that was when he wasn't a Christian. When he becomes a Christian, he says, Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. You see, the thing is absolutely different. Well, it's simply another way of putting this proposition. That the first thing we have to grasp about the Christian faith is that it's something that God has done. It is God's action which is offered to us, which we are asked to believe and to receive, in which we are asked to rejoice, and from which we are asked to benefit. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is Jesus, is, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there it is at the very beginning. And yet I trust that no one will resent it if I again put my question. Had your understanding of Christianity, my friend, started at that point? Had you always thought of it as something which the blessed, glorious God himself has done? 
Have you instinctively thought of it as not the record of men's activity or achievement? But when the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Always God the Lord from beginning to end. I the Lord have spoken and have done it. Now that's the starting point. But let me come to this second matter, which is the one that is emphasized here perhaps still more. That God's way of saving men is entirely unexpected and surprising. It is a complete reversal of everything we would ever have thought of and everything that we would ever have imagined. Now this is to me, in many senses, more and more, the most vital point of all. Now, it's my privilege often to talk to people about these things and intelligent, intellectual men. And invariably, I'm confronted by the same situation. God knows I understand it. I've been guilty of the self-same thing myself. The whole approach seems to be this. They've read and they've studied and they've thought, they've considered this view and that view. Well, now then, here's this Christian view. And they approach it in exactly the same way. They start by thinking that it's one in series with a number of religions and a number of philosophies and so on. And therefore, it's to be approached in exactly the same way. Now, I say the moment a man tells me that, I know that he hasn't started at all. He's on the wrong road. And as long as he remains in that position, he simply cannot be a Christian. How can I make this plain and clear? Christianity is the reversal of everything natural and everything human. Now that's not an overstatement. That is an exact and a scientific statement. It is a reversal of that which is natural and human. Now, it's put here in this form. I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and have exalted the low tree have dried up the green tree and have made the dry tree to flourish. Now, you can't imagine any greater reversal of a position than that. The high is brought down, the low is raised up. The green is made dry and the dry is made green. A complete reversal. Now, again, it is a vital part of my message this evening to establish the fact that that is something which is stated everywhere in the Bible. It isn't merely stated here by Ezekiel. Isaiah says exactly the same thing. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him when he is near. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. Could it be plainer than that? Don't begin to think, says Isaiah, in the same way, that this is just one in series, that it's something human. It isn't. This isn't a human philosophy. This is God. This is God's way. This is God's thought. This is God's speech. This is God's action. And there's nothing else in the world like it. There's never been anything. There never will be. This is absolutely alone and unique. 
But I suppose there's no better statement of it anywhere in Scripture than that tremendous statement of it that we were reading there together at the beginning in that first chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, and that is why we read it. Here the apostle, you remember, is throwing out his great challenge. What is this gospel? Well, Paul says it's something like this. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For he see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Well, what's been happening? God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now there it is, you see, so plain and unequivocal, so clear. And yet, as I'm trying to tell you this evening, the whole tragedy of the position is that men and women uh, speak and think and argue and debate as if Paul had never written at all. They will not realize at the very beginning that here they come into a realm which is altogether different, that all the categories to which they've been accustomed must be left outside and that they start in an entirely new world and with an entirely new outlook. I'm emphasizing this. I'm trying to underline it. The Christian message, the Christian salvation, is absolutely unlike anything that man has ever thought or imagined. It has the uniqueness of a message that comes directly from God. Now then, if that is the general proposition, let me hurriedly illustrate it to you. I say that if your conception of Christianity hasn't come to you as a surprise, as something passing strange and wonderful, as something that has caused you to reverse all your ideas, and as it were to stand on your head or be turned upside down to use the New Testament language at a point. If it doesn't come like that, I say you've never known it. If you just as a natural man have taken up Christianity, if you espouse some kind of Christian philosophy, well, I'm sorry, but as I understand this statement, you are just not a Christian. It's the complete reversal. It's the turning upside down, inside out. It's entirely different from all we've ever known. Let me show you, give you the illustrations of this. Look at it in the case of our blessed Lord and Savior himself. Now, this is the kind of thing that the New Testament tells us. Everything about the Lord Jesus Christ was surprising. It was passing strange. It was astonishing. It was so strange, you see, that people wouldn't believe it. The Jews wouldn't believe it. The Gentiles, the able Gentiles, the philosophers, they likewise rejected it. Why? Well, because it was so absolutely different from anything they'd ever expected. Now, the Jews, as the result of their prophetic teaching, were awaiting the coming of their Messiah. They were looking forward to this. 
They said when he came, he would do everything that they needed, and, it's, and he would set them free. Then in the fullness of the times, he came and appeared before them and preached to them, and they resented him, and they rejected him. They threw stones at him. And when they were given the choice of this man or a robber called Barabbas, they said, give us Barabbas. Away with this Jesus. Crucify him. They rejected him. Why? Well, you know the answer. It was because he was so essentially and absolutely different from anything they'd ever thought of or imagined or expected. It's still the same. You see, in his very birth he was different. You ask men to tell you how they imagined the Son of God would come into this world, and they think immediately in some terms of some great theophany, some great appearance, some specter, some sign in the heavens, and some great eternal royal personage appearing on earth. But when the Son of God came, when the mighty Deliverer arrived, it was in a stable, not even in the inn, crowded out, in the stable with the cattle, and his little body laid in a manger. He came in lowliness, he came in abject poverty. He came to use the scriptural imagery as a root out of a dry ground. No pomp and ceremony. But the Son of God, the creator of the world, came in utter weakness, like a helpless babe, indistinguishable from any other babe to look at him and to handle. There he is. You see, at once we are in this new realm, this strange way of God. Men would never have ordered it like that. Men don't order things like that. They do things in king's palaces. That's where the great are born. But not so the Son of God. The exact opposite of anything you'd ever have thought of. But there it is. That's the principle. And here's the illustration. And then look at his life for a moment. You would have thought that when the Son of God came here on earth, there would have been everything wonderful about his way of living and about his upbringing his teaching, his training, and the display of his knowledge, and so on. Oh, I needn't keep you. You know the actual record is the, the exact opposite of all that. He came and was brought up as a boy, and he began to work as a carpenter with his hands, an artisan. That's how he spent his life. Indeed, the most astonishing thing of all, it uh, always seems to me, is this. That until the age of 30, he spent his time entirely in that way. Not in the schools, not in the academies, not in the then seats of learning, not being trained even as a Pharisee. No, but just doing this manual labor, this ordinary work, not only not in a king's palace, but I say apparently no preparation at all. And up until the age of 30, just that. The Son of God who's come down to save men, that's how he spends his time. Isn't it obvious that when God acts, he acts in a manner that's entirely incomprehensible to men? It seems to be unutterable folly. What, that's what Paul puts it, you see, with his masterly irony. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And may I venture, therefore, to use his terms and his phrase. Can you imagine greater folly than that? Ascending the Savior 
in the form of a babe and a carpenter. Monstrous folly. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then go on and look at his ministry. Here again he ever surprised his contemporaries. The Jews looked at him and when they saw certain of his miracles, they said, I wonder whether this is the Messiah after all. On one occasion he fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes. And they began to talk to one another and they said, isn't this the Messiah? And then do you remember what they did? We are told that they went and they tried to take him by force to make him a king. But he wouldn't have it. He shook them off. He sent his disciples into a boat and he went up himself alone onto the top of a mountain. But you see, that's what they wanted. That's what they expected. Surely, they said, the deliverer, when he comes, will set up his kingdom. He'll proclaim himself as king. He'll gather together a great army. He'll destroy the Roman armies. He'll introduce an usher in a great kingdom of reform, social, political, economic. That's what they want from him still. That's still the idea, isn't it? But you see, he doesn't do that. And it was because he didn't do that kind of thing that he uh, not only caused the generality of the people to stumble, his own brethren, we are told, stumbled at it. They said, look here, if you are what you claim to be, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and declare yourself? John the Baptist even was stumbled. John in prison sent his two messengers to ask, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? What did John mean? Well, he meant something like this. He said, if you are the Messiah, why don't you set up your kingdom? Why don't you declare yourself? You're spending your time in Galilee, preaching to a handful of ordinary people, speaking to them, working your miracles. Why don't you do the big things? But he never did what people expected of him. It's always the reversal of everything that we could have imagined or have guessed or have prophesied. He preaches to the poor. He's there in distant Galilee. He isn't in Jerusalem. He's not at the center. What's the matter? Ah, it's the foolishness of God. It's God doing the opposite of what men in his wisdom expects. But I suppose there was nothing more surprising about him than the people with whom he mixed. Not only did he not mix with the kings and with the great, you know, he didn't even mix very much with the Pharisees. He was ready to speak to them, but he was given the name of friend of publicans and sinners. At any rate, you would have thought that when the Son of God comes to save, he would have spent his time with the religious, the doctors of the law. But no, he spends his time, he's a friend of publicans and sinners. He eats and drinks with them. You see, it reverses all our ideas. We've got this idea of natural religion and that the Christian is the good man and the man who makes himself better by his own efforts and striving and is religious and this and that and goes on with his old tradition in which he's been brought up and there's the outsider on the street and in the gutter. They've got nothing to do with all this. We, good people, my dear friends, it's the very negation of Christianity. Not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to save. They that are whole, he said, have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. 
It's the exact opposite always of what people expected, but come to the final point, the supreme point of this contrast. Surely men would have argued if he's come to save and to deliver. He must do it in one of these several forms. He must either do it in that military or economic or social form, or else he must do it as the disseminator of some great novel startling idea. He must be the philosopher of all the philosophers, and he will go to the seat of philosophy, therefore, and promulgate his great teaching. He'll set up and say, here it is, I save you by an idea. I'm going to rescue you by a word. But you know what happened? He was crucified in weakness. They took him. They arrested him. They tried him. They condemned him. They nailed him to a tree. There is your Savior, nailed to a tree, helpless, speechless, with a terrible thirst in a great agony. Crying out a cry of dereliction. The end of everything. He seems a complete and an abject failure. But you know, that's his way of saving. What's he doing on that cross? Putting principalities and powers to shame. Making an open show of them. Mastering them, conquering them. It's there. He saves. Our symbol is a cross. Ridiculous. Monstrous. No power. No word. No philosophy. Weakness. Helplessness. Death. But it's by dying he saves. It's by bearing our sins in his own body on the tree that he redeems. Oh, Men can't understand it. The clever people standing and looking on said, Others he saved. Himself he cannot save. And that's the last word. Philosophy has spoken. He claimed he did. He cannot himself. Others he saved. Himself he cannot save. Oh, the ignorance, the abject failure to understand that we're not dealing with a man, but with God. Not with men's ways of salvation, but with God's way of salvation. And it's unlike everything else. It's folly to the world, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, a dying savior, a dying carpenter, the savior of the world. But he is. It's the utter, absolute reversal of everything man has ever thought or imagined or conceived. You see it all, you see. Illustrated perfectly in him, yes. But still more is it illustrated, in a sense, in his dealings with men and in the effect of his gospel upon them. Here it is for you in the little picture. I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree and have made the dry tree to flourish. The aged Simeon stands there with the infant Jesus in his arms and he looks upon him and this is what he says. This child is set for the fall 
and the rising again of many in Israel. Falling, rising, casting down, raising up. It's everywhere in the Bible. Whether it's trees or people, it's the same message, you see. He brings to note the things that are. That the things that are not might become. Call it paradox if you like. Use any terms you please. It doesn't matter. But that's God. Turning upside down. Reversing. Confounding the wisdom of the wise with the foolishness of preaching. But oh my dear friends. I wouldn't leave it with you in the realm of a general principle. The details here are so important because our whole eternal future depends upon our understanding of this. Therefore, let me put it it quite simply and plainly and bluntly. What is it he does to those who are considered great by the world and considered great by themselves? What does, he, what does he do to those who are self-satisfied and complacent and pleased with themselves? What does he do to those who think they're living a good life and therefore they've got nothing to fear? They say they're ready to meet God and they want to go to heaven. What does he say? What does he do to such? He brings them down. I have brought down the high tree. He has made foolish the wisdom of the wise. How? Well, in these respects. He does it, you know, with respect to their knowledge. Man's last citadel is his knowledge. Pride of intellect is the last and the ultimate sin. And the world today has never been so proud of its knowledge and proud of itself as it is at this present time. And people are laughing at Christianity and ignoring it and dismissing it because they think they know. But the Lord Jesus Christ humbles and brings down the knowledge of men tonight as much as he's ever done. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Let him come forward, says Paul. Are you interested in knowledge? Well, very well. Let's have a discussion. Here are the questions. What is men? What is life? What is death? What happens beyond death? Where is God? What is God like? There are the questions. Knowledge, wisdom, philosophy, understanding, the tomes, the volumes, the display of learning. Well, where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Let him step forward. Let him speak. Let him tell me. The answer is he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know himself. He doesn't know how to live. He doesn't know how to die. He knows nothing of life beyond death and the grave. He doesn't know God. He's terribly ignorant, but here is one carpenter of Nazareth dying on a cross. He knows. He knows God. He knows man. 
He understands. He has the knowledge and the information. He ridicules the wise. He brings down their learning and their knowledge. He's still doing it. But some of men and women don't seem to realize it. But he's doing it. And you can read the accounts of how he's doing it constantly in your daily newspapers. The greatest physician, you know, has to die. One of them died the other day. No man knew more about disease and illness and things like that than that particular man. But as a friend put it to me, well, he said, even he had to die. On his deathbed, he can talk about disease processes. But he didn't talk about God. He talked about this life and its illnesses. Did he talk about the next life? No, no, the wisdom of this world comes to an end. It's made to look foolish in the presence of death. And your great men in every realm and department go out silently into the night. They don't know the wisdom of this world, the knowledge. He is humbled. He throws it down the high tree. He casts to the floor. And it's the same with your morality. Let the world talk about its moral codes and its ethics and its behavior. And it does. And it's because it thinks these things are so good and that we can be educated to these things that it hasn't seen the need of that death upon the cross. But you know, he ridicules our morality in the same way. Take your highest morality, put it by the side of the Ten Commandments. Put it by the side of the Sermon on the Mount. Put it by the life of Jesus Christ in all his purity and glory and in all his wonder and what you find. Your best man is a miserable worm. Your most moral person is not fit to be spoken of with the same breath. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's our little standards, you see, that make us self-satisfied. We think we're so good and nice. Oh, go to God. Look at God's holiness, that eternal light dwelling in that heaven and to which no man can attain by his own efforts. And your little morality will shrivel for nothing, as it did in the case of Saul of Tarsus again. What was so marvelous, he saw, was nothing but dung, a manure heap, festering and rotting, unworthy of mention. God brings down our knowledge, he brings down our morality, and he brings down our self-reliance. We are not only humbled, I say, when thus we compare the knowledge of Christ and his teaching and his life and his ethics and his morality. We are humbled, as I've already indicated, by the fact of death. Oh, what a great level of death is. High and low, rich and poor, they all go together. Man that dies without knowledge, says the 50th Psalm, is like the beasts that perish. They just die and they go out. They've got nothing. They know nothing, as I've said. Oh, how we're humbled. Ah, but our Lord makes even a more thorough work than that. John the Baptist could see it coming. He said, no, I'm not the Messiah. He said, I am not worthy to undo the latchet of his shoes. 
He shall I indeed baptize you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fen is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. And the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. No, no, says John, I'm only merely the prelude, as it were, the one introducing. When he comes, he will apply the axe to the root of the trees. Not a superficial examination, but this vital examination in the presence of God. And however high the tree, he'll bring it down, crashing to nothing. All our work, we are told, shall be tried by fire. And all wood and hay and stubble will be consumed and burnt away. And nothing can stand the fire but the pure gold. Your alloys, your admixtures, your camouflage, and all that seems like gold will be shown for what it is. And nothing but the pure gold remains. Tried us by fire, he'll bring down. He will judge the world and the great men will all appear before him and they all will be consigned to the punishment that they so richly deserve. He brings down the high tree, he makes dry the green tree. But oh, thank God that this way of salvation is not man's but is rather God's for he does the opposite. And I have elevated, exalted the low tree and have made the dry tree to flourish. That's the Christian message. While it has nothing to say to those who are high and self-satisfied, but that they shall be brought down, to those who are conscious of failure and smallness and need, and ignorance and destitution, it has everything to say and everything to offer. If you're lying in the dust and ashes and ruination of your life, if you've gone wrong morally and in every other respect, and are at the end of your tether, and the world has turned its back upon you in its respectability, Christ still looks at you and tells you he's come to save you. He raises the fallen. He elevates the low tree and exalts it and raises it up. He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I came, he says, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, he says. Blessed are they that mourn about their sins. Blessed is the man who knows that he's a terrible failure and full of ignorance and of vileness. Blessed is he Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They haven't got it, but they hunger and thirst after it. They shall be filled. What a blessed gospel. He elevates that which is low. Not only that, he gives it life. He puts new vigor and power into it. He fills it with sap. I find it difficult always to speak with restraint at this point. But there is no greater travesty of the gospel than that which makes men think 
that they save themselves by their own efforts. You see, it's the exact opposite. It is, an, it is a gospel. It is a message to failures. A man comes to me and says, you know, I've sinned my very strength and understanding away. I've drugged my very brain. I can't think. I don't know what I'm doing. My faculties seem to have gone. Do you know the gospel of Christ has got everything to offer even to such a man? It puts new life into him. The life of God. The life of Christ. The strength of the Holy Spirit. It's God's action, I say. It's not man trying to raise himself up. It's Christ coming and taking hold to him and infusing his life into him and giving him this new nature and this new power. And so, as we are told, he makes the dry tree to flourish. And the abject sinner becomes a saint adorning the church of God. And the down and out becomes a man who sings the praises of God. It is entirely his doing. It is altogether his doing. You and I have but to receive in our helplessness. Whatever you need, he offers it you. He'll give you free pardon and forgiveness. You don't earn forgiveness. You never can. If you tried from now until you're dead to earn forgiveness, you never would. It's the free gift of God. He gives it for nothing. Because Christ has suffered for your sins, God will forgive you. You'll never, I say, create life divine within yourself. God in Christ offers it you here and now. Not a process immediate can be received now. You have only to see your need and believe his message. You'll have it. It is the complete opposite of everything human, everything natural. It is God's way of salvation, confounding the wise and the prudent, but elevating the babes, the ignorant, the needy, the helpless, the vile, and the poor. My dear friend, had you realized that that is the gospel? The free gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Do you owe all to him? If any man glorious, let him glory in the Lord. Are you doing so? That's Christianity. Everything else is a sham and a pretense. To be a Christian means that you glory entirely in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he has done for you.